there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. If you're interested in national security and you like the idea of solving big problems, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a retired U.S. Army colonel who spent 32 years in uniform before co-founding Hacking for Defense, an academic program taught at over 22 universities across the U.S. that has adapted problem-solving techniques that have been used on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan and married them up with best practices used by successful Silicon Valley startups. But before I introduce you to Pete Newell, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that we blast out on Monday mornings to give you an exclusive peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring every day that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and sign up. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is retired U.S. Army Colonel Pete Newell, a nationally recognized innovation expert whose work is transforming how the government and other large organizations compete and drive growth. Pete is the president and CEO of BMNT, an innovation consultancy and early stage technology incubator that works with national security organizations to help them solve all kinds of incredibly complex problems. And he's also a founder and co-author with lean startup founder Steve Blank of Hacking for Defense, which is H, the number 4D, an academic program that's taught at over 22 universities around the U.S. Prior to joining BMNT, Pete served as the director of the U.S. Army's Rapid Equipping Force, REF. Reporting directly to the senior leadership of the Army, he was charged with finding, integrating, and employing solutions as quickly as possible to emerging problems that were being faced by soldiers on the battlefield. Pete is also an Army Ranger who has received numerous awards, including the Silver Star and Presidential Unit Citation. By the way, if you want to learn more about how to break into the national security world writ large, especially in the private sector, please check out the show notes for this episode to see if the Espresso Shots episode with Pete has already been released. Pete, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your black coffee and ready to go? I am top off and ready. Awesome. So I want to begin because I think it is the right thing to do by, again, thanking you for your many decades of service to this country. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I'm glad to pass that forward to the the generation that followed me, to include my own kids. Well, you must be incredibly proud of them. Yeah, I am. All of them. I'm constantly impressed by the quality and the energy that so many of the young women, men and women who have, who have come into the service the last 10 years have brought to us. But it is inspiring to watch happen. Absolutely. One of the many reasons that I am so grateful to you to have this opportunity 
for us to speak today is that not only did you have an extensive career in the U.S. military, but you've successfully pivoted into other careers in the private sector. And I thought it would be helpful to our young listeners to lay out for them a bit more about how you made that pivot. Was this something that you were thinking about and planning for a long time while you were still in the military? And if so, for how long? No. In fact, I made that decision in about 30 seconds. Really? It it really was. And, And I guess, you know, for your listeners, I have to explain that I was an infantryman, which meant that as an army officer, your career is essentially based on a series of boards who select you for promotion and select you for command of larger and larger units. And as a brigade commander, a colonel, which is pretty senior, you know, across the army at the time, I think there were 27 colonels like me in command. It really is the top 100th of 1% of the people who are looking at each other, wondering who's going to get the next promotion and the next command. So it, one is a great group of people, but two, it is highly, highly competitive. There comes a point in time when you start looking at the life of a colonel versus the life of a general officer. And I tell people that becoming a general is a lot like re-enlisting. You essentially give up control of your life and go back to start all over. It's very different. I was on that trajectory to compete, to be a general officer, and you know, quite frankly, was asked, told by the folks who manage our careers and our assignments that my I needed to move to Korea to work for a four-star general. And, and quite frankly, it would have meant the fifth move in seven years for my family. Yeah, my wife was finishing her master's degree. My youngest son was getting ready to graduate from college, or my oldest was, and my youngest was you know, getting ready to start for high school. And and I had to tell them, you know, quite frankly, you know, thank you. And they came back and said, no, really, we mean it. You know, we've nominated seven people for this job. You were selected, and you need to go do it. And at that point, I got so frustrated with the process that I just had to. I realized at that point that I did not want to become a general officer and start all over again. I really, my my family had given for long enough, and, and at that point, it was time for me to consider another career choice. So really, in the span of a 30-second phone call, I decided to retire with no idea what I was going to do next. Gotta love my wife for actually tolerating it. <laughs> so how did you figure out what your next step should be? You know, I, I think I was fortunate because I was running, you know, the Army's Rapid Equipping Force at the time, and that job forced me out of my comfort zone and forced me to learn lots of things about business, academia, technology, how the government runs. And I had, I think, a perfect ringside seat to actually watch how problems in the battlefield manifested themselves and how they were actually solved by a very large, diverse bureaucracy or how they weren't. Some of those lessons were really painful. And in some cases, you know, I was able to build you know, what we call a pipeline today that delivered over a billion and a half dollars worth of solutions to the battlefield in about two years on a budget of $160 million. What I learned in the process of doing that told me that there were other things that I was truly good at. And quite frankly, I was an entrepreneur at heart. And at that point, it became really hard because I realized that I wasn't well suited for you know, working as a contractor in the government or, or working in a large company. I needed to go do something uh, and build it for myself. And so that's what you did. I did. 
I moved to California with no job and no idea what I was going to do. And, and I've never lived in California before either. And why did you pick California? I spent a lot of time at both MIT and Boston and quite a bit of time at Stanford. And I found in both places that they were massively intellectually stimulating to me. I met lots of really cool people with cool ideas and they were doing great things. And, and I was attracted to that. I settled on California because I found that Silicon Valley, the attitude of free exchange of ideas was just full on. It's like drinking from a fire hose. And there were so many helpful people that literally stepped out and said, you know, come talk to me about ideas and, and do things. And, and they were phenomenal. And quite frankly, you can't beat the weather here. <laughs> yes, for sure. It was a tough call to move to Palo Alto, California, where it's not exactly the cheapest place in the world to work without a job and start a company. So how long after you retired from the military did you start BMNT? Well, actually, my original partner, Joe Felter, who was also a retired colonel, was actually, he was at Stanford at the time. He started BMNT Partners, which was the original company, probably six months before I retired. I was driving across the country moving. And literally got called by somebody who asked me to stop in Kansas City, Kansas, and talk to the director of a classified facility who was struggling with innovation. And quite frankly, I, I sat in a coffee shop of a hotel someplace drawing on napkins my understanding of how innovation in a large government organization should happen. And it literally tried to hire me on the spot. I begged off so I could move across country, but... <laughs> We built a company while in flight. We had no idea what we'd really do. And in the early days, it was really hard to articulate the people in the Valley that, that were interested in national security. And right about the time the Snowden stuff broke and the NSA had issues and, and people thought we were nuts. But people in the government couldn't understand what we were doing because we weren't traveling salesmen, you know, trying to sell trinkets to the government. And people in tech companies couldn't quite figure out what we were doing because we weren't helping them sell things to the government. It, it took a while for us to figure out what we were truly good at and how to turn that into a business model that helped us grow a couple. Is it possible to help us to see how you crossed the lexicon, how you managed to figure out what the secret sauce was? Without copying verbatim from Steve Blank's book, we have some hypotheses about the state of the relationship between the national security enterprise, which means the Department of Defense, the intelligence agencies, and Silicon Valley. I had a lot of experience in understanding problems that are faced by people on a battlefield today and how those problems manifest themselves and how the enterprise actually deals with them. One by one, we would find people with real problems who were willing to take a different a different approach. They were desperate enough to take a different approach to it and listen to what we had to say about how they would do discovery, first to validate that they were actually working on the right problem, and then to validate that they understand the technology around that, and then how they could use that to attract the really young, bright companies out there that were working in tech that were best suited to help them solve the problem. And then following that, how Hollywood then go back to the enterprise and use every loophole in the acquisition system to actually get their thing done. 
And we started very small. We, we took one or two things at a time and quickly learned that we had built a methodology. You know, and it's about the time I bumped into Steve Blank and we kind of merged minds for a while. But we found, you know, very rapidly that not only were we helping people solve problems, but we spent a lot of time teaching. And that turned into a whole other business line. So just to kind of tease some of this out, when you say that's where you develop the methodology, is that methodology the H for X? Yes. So it literally started with a government client who came to us and said, we are trying to build the planning, programming, and budget document for FY2020, which means they're trying to build a budget for you know 2025 and technology. And they were required to get a significant amount of input from what they call non-traditionals, which means companies who traditionally don't do uh, work with the government. And they weren't getting anywhere. And of course, you know what they would do is they come to Silicon Valley doing what we would call tech tourism. They go to all the big places and they talk a great game and they say, okay, if you would just write us a white paper, we'll include it in the paper. And of course, the companies are looking at it going, I, I'm not going to spend $1,500 an hour writing a white paper for you to put in a thing that, that nobody's going to look at for 10 years. The client merely said, can you prove that there's a way for DOD to engage the people in Silicon Valley in a meaningful conversation about something that's important to DOD? And her answer was yes. And knowing, because I had done this for years, that the what I call bait in Silicon Valley is the biggest, nastiest problem you could find. The way people in the Valley think is, is if I can find a really big, nasty problem and a potential solution, there's a business model that I can build. And I can, in three years, I can go from seed to a unicorn. What I was trying to get folks in the DOD to understand is your big, hard, nasty problems are your collateral to get the Valley to engage with you. It's not your money they care about. You have real problems that make sense to them if you can converse with them in the right way. The process of helping the government take their really government-driven, complicated, nonsensical problems and turn them into English that people could understand and to help them understand that if the problem exists in the government, I can almost guarantee that somewhere in the commercial world, that problem exists as well. You just got to find it and match the two together. And using that, you can actually get companies to talk to you and investors around the table and people interested in actually work with you. That becomes eventually the methodology that we now call H4X. It is the process of building a pipeline of sourcing problems and ideas and people and, and tech and then curating that down into things that are actually actionable. Then using the discovery, which is essentially the lean processes that Steve Blank built to validate first that you're working on the right problem and then validate that you have a potential solution and a pathway to deliver that solution before you make a capital decision on what you're going to incubate, invest in. I was just going to say that's the fail early, fail fast. That discovery process is fail fast in order to learn things. And I'm actually not a fan of the, you know, fairly really fell fast. I tell people the, the reason you build hypotheses and test them is so you can learn things. And if you're not failing and invalidating your hypothesis, you're not pushing the boundary hard enough. But yes, that's a big part of it. And then it's what really, was that last piece? It's a big part of it. If If you're not developing hypotheses and testing them and having a certain percentage fail, you are not pushing the boundaries of what you're trying to do hard enough. You can't learn unless you fail sometimes. In fact, you learn more by failing than you do by succeeding in a lot of cases. 
failing repetitively in order to learn and gain confidence that you're working on the right things is critical in this environment. So to make sure that I understand this correctly, Pete, you were serving both as a translator between the military and the civilian world and as somebody who had deep understanding of the way that the military operates and how military officers were helping soldiers on the battlefield solve big problems very quickly and then helping in a way with your partner to matchmate with Silicon Valley startups or just curious entrepreneurs to see if they wanted to take on that problem because it might turn out to be a business for them. That's a very simple way of saying it. I I think the nuances I would give you is you're trying to become the connective tissue between the two, which means from the military standpoint, and trying to help them articulate their problem in a manner that makes it much more understandable, but also would help somebody who's in the civilian world relate that problem in the military to a series of problems that also exist in in the commercial world and becomes a much more compelling argument for a company to take on the government's problem because they now see the potential for not just answering a government issue, but also a much larger commercial market. And that you can make a business case for. Okay. I understand. Thank you so much. So as part of this, you've already alluded to it. You created this framework, this H for X. Then you met the man who would become your partner, who is the godfather, I guess, of the lean startup, Steve Blank. And the two of you then created H for D, Hacking for Defense, which is a course, right, that's being taught all over the country. Can you elaborate on that? I would tell you that what I had invented, the early days of hacking for anything, it really, we started with hacking for defense. And we had built the problem side of it, how to understand problems, how to curate them so they're understandable and, and, and move problems. And we kind of understood the hypothesis generation and discovery, but not really. When we met Steve, we bolted the two together. And that became hacking for defense. As soon as we got that right, people said, well, can you hack diplomacy? Can you hack energy? Can you hack the oceans? Can you hack the environment? <laughs> Oddly enough, we finally got tired of, of hacking different things. They finally said, you know what? The underpinnings of what we're doing, of creating an innovation pipeline that goes from you know problem curation, identification, up to the point you transition something, is H4X. And H4X encompasses all the activities that happen in between it. Hacking for defense, what we built with Steve, really, it created the playground or sandbox that allowed us to to generate our own hypothesis and learn about what things made sense within H4X. Okay. And much of that is within and dealing with national security challenges. Is that correct? For H4X, yes, but we're finding now that H4X, so what I would tell you is hacking for defense is the application of problem curation and lane methodologies in an academic environment 
that's designed to enable students to gain experience in an entrepreneurial environment solving really hard national security problems. We're fortunate that Hacking for Defense is fully supported by Congress. And we have great partners at the National Security Innovation Network, which is the DOD sponsor for it, who are helping us promote that nationally. H4X has become the enterprise-level application of that process that large government organizations, large defense primes, and even in some cases, commercial companies are now applying to help them wrestle with how are they really going to do innovation in a world where tech is changing exceptionally fast and getting ahead of them. Can you give our young listeners an example of the kind of solutions that you have innovated, that they've innovated, the students have innovated at various schools around the country through the Hacking for Defense program. You know, one of the early ones on was a team called Capella Space. And when I first met these students, and they were students at Stanford, in fact, I was, I was sitting in a room with somebody from the Defense Innovation Unit sitting next to me. And the student just happened to be sitting behind us. And we were getting ready to launch the first hacking for defense class. And, and he was talking to us about it, you know, going, hey, I'm kind of interested in synthetic aperture radar from space, SAR imagery, which, which essentially is the imagery you can get that, that t- goes through clouds and, and can see what's going on regardless of weather. And he was thinking about taking the class. And, and of course, we didn't have a problem for him to solve. You know, quite frankly, I was thinking, wait a minute. The last time I heard synthetic aperture radar was, you know, that was a billion-dollar satellite program. And here was a kid at Stanford talking about, no, I want to do, you know, CubeSats with this sensor on it. And we think we can do it. The, the guy from the Defense Innovation Unit and I literally – scout around looking for a problem that made sense for that kind of tech in order to entice this this student and his team to take the class. And oddly enough, what we eventually settled on was a problem, illegal commercial fishing. And what I never realized is just how big an economic problem illegal commercial fishing is and and how many conflicts are started because of it. But surprisingly, the technology best suited for countering illegal fishing, which they do at night when it's raining and it's cloud covered because you can't see them, is the same technology we would need to be able to follow, say, North Korean mobile lynch missile launchers who are moving around the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So you can see how we, we found what sounds like a, an international commercial problem that has an immediate military application and use that as, as a means to get this team involved in the course. The team took the course, and it was hard, eventually decided that while they thought they were going to be a satellite company that built synthetic aperture radar sensors for satellites, realized the most valuable thing they had was data, and that it was really that data was their business. When they left the class in June of uh, 2016, the day after the final presentations, they closed a a $200,000 seed round. They spent the summer working on a commercial business case for for what the satellite company, data company, would be. They closed a $1.26 million seed round in August. The National Reconnaissance Office wrote them a $10 million contract three months later. 
And six months after that, they closed a $12 million Series A round. Six months later, closed another 15. Five months after that, put the first satellite up. It's now a $50 million company. And it's working. And they're flying satellites and getting ready to launch, I think, the next batch or three or four. And they are pulling together some of the most insane data that I, I've looked at in, in a long time. So in less than three years, they went from a concept and an idea with no business model and no problem to solve to not just a military application, but a no kidding, dyed and blue, well-funded company. One of my favorites that came out of the current class was a company that was lost by a group of military reservists who were working on micro-learning for sports teams. Essentially, how do you get football players to learn new plays? And it's not like you put them through the playbook, but you can actually build an app application that allows them to walk to play and understand and, and very rapidly learn things. They came to the class this, this past semester and you know they pivoted to the point, but they realized that across the Department of Defense, our learning systems are so antiquated, we're wasting people's time and we're wasting money with systems that nobody touches anymore. And literally learned that they could take this app and the application of micro-learning and allow organizations to very rapidly build new lessons plans that would enhance the learning that people already had or to enable them to learn something new or to reinforce things that weren't going right. And they're, they've won a couple of awards and a couple of different accelerators already and are really going to do some great things over the course of the year, I think. Is there a national security application for that as well? Sure there is, you know, quite frankly. And, and the one that, that really got them started was working with pilots. You know, some of our older airframes, you know, for instance, the U-2s and reconnaissance aircraft, there are some very specific procedures you have to learn that you may only use once every two years. Yet when you have to use it, you don't have time to relearn it. So there's a series of certifications people have to do. Nobody's really hit on that. And you know, quite frankly, there's enough time to do about half of what you're supposed to. If you do it the way it is now, they proved through significant user feedback and discovery that they could actually build these micro learning sessions that were better and faster at enabling learning, but also that the commanders could tell who was actually going through them and how well they were performing. And it becomes a safety issue. I can reinforce the fact that my people have actually gone through all these and that they performed to a satisfactory manner, or I realize I have an issue. And the people are failing something in particular. Now, I might have to do some additional training. The time saver alone is, is worth millions and millions of dollars. And I, I can't tell you, there's probably not an enterprise-level organization out there that is not scrambling for a way to keep their workforce educated, whether it's on topics related to sexual harassment, workplace safety, new human resource benefits, and other things. That short of putting people in a classroom for eight hours and teaching of something, that seems to be the only way they've got to figure it out. This application is just huge, I think, as a time flavor for folks regardless of what they do. Yeah, sounds amazing. Pete, before I ask you about your time as an undergrad, I'd love to ask you two-part question, especially for those of our young listeners who may now be on an ROTC scholarship or may in fact already be in uniform today, how can they be strategic about the way they think about their time in the military and how they can best maximize the experience that they're getting there to help them when they move into a civilian career? 
You know, I love that question. And I'm actually going to start with how do they maximize the time they have left in the university? And the first thing I want to say is very deliberately curate a very device diverse network of folks at your university. And by diverse, I mean diverse of thought. And there'll be people who understand when I say this, but unfortunately, a lot of our, our young cadets, they're involved in a military fraternity, they do military events, they go to military classes. And, and despite the fact they're in classes with civilian students, that's not their clique. And if they're not careful real quick, they'll become insular. What I would encourage them to do is run for the student government, get involved in different things that are widely different than what you'll do in the military. Because quite frankly, what you'll learn outside of the ROTC classroom, you will use again and again and again. The people that you meet and work on hard things with, you will form bonds that will last you the rest of your life, regardless within the military or afterward. And they will be hugely important to you. Invest in the networks. Investing on working in real things with real people that will give you experience in the real world. And then how can they think in a really thoughtful way about their time in uniform and the experiences that they are getting on the job and the practical application that they may not even be thinking about of those experiences in the civilian world? And I hate to go back to the problem thing is that your experience in the military, particularly folks who are deployed, you experience a rate of facing problems every day that is probably three to five times as fast as what your peers in the commercial world will. So, you know, young military officers in particular or NCOs, non-commissioned officers, are so responsible for the people around them that they see things on a daily basis that somebody in a commercial world might only see once a month or once every six months. Their ability to lead and deal with problems and solve things for the humans around them, their ability to convince people to do the right thing when it is the most hardest will be things that they learn and experience that will mature them beyond what would typically happen. That experience it was what makes you truly valuable to the companies who will want to hire you later on. Sure, there's some technical skills, sure, there's some experiences, but it's simply the leadership and the ability to deal with humanity in the appropriate way, regardless of what's going on in the workplace, is critical. I wish more of the Silicon Valley startups out here who have faced a spat of ethical and moral issues right, had thought through their hiring early on, because I think there are lots of folks that built the organization right would have prevented them from having some of the crashes they're having now. Hmm. So the second part of that initial question is for those young people who aren't yet sure what they want to do with their lives, certainly not in the short term. They may still be in high school. Maybe they're in college. Maybe they've graduated or dropped out. Why should they consider either building a career in the U.S. military or another type of national service out of uniform? I think that, and I will tell you this, what I did. I was literally a college dropout who joined the, the Army National Guard so that I could feed myself. What I found is that when I was, and I never, I, I didn't set out to be a career Army officer either. Uh, what I found was the in the spectrum of national service, and I don't care whether whether you join the military, the intelligence service, you become a police officer or a fireman or, or, or anything, those types of jobs give you a different picture every day. 
I never solved the same problem, you know, in every one day. It was constantly something new, constantly learning things, constantly dealing with people, constantly testing myself. But at the same time, I had a degree of mentorship on people who were more senior to me, who were always given. They were always there. There was always somebody I could lean on that would, that, that would help me not fall flat on my face too much. And I think that, you know, you can't underscore the importance of growing up in a supportive environment like that. Absolutely. So very quickly, Pete, I'd like to flash back to when you were an undergrad at Kansas State University. You got your BS in life sciences. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Oh, absolutely not. First and foremost, I, I was a horrible student. Had they had a thing called gap years back then, I would probably be an ideal candidate. Because you know, leaving high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. Wasn't a great student. And not because, you know, not bright. It's just I got bored easily. I got bored in high school because I was taught, you know, the same archaic way, quite frankly, we still do today. And that just didn't jive well with me. So I will tell you that, that I went to Kansas State without a clear plan. In fact, my, my first career choice is I was matriculated to Kansas State to get a degree in agricultural economics. In the middle of Kansas, so I, I, you know, I like cows and, and that thing. I, I realized pretty quick that the young men and women had grown up on farms, knew about a thousand percent more than I did, and I was a fish out of water. So, you know, I went through, I don't want to say three different degree tracks trying to find my way and eventually failed out. I did find that, that I enjoyed working. And at one point, I was probably working more than I was going to school, and that's probably where my grades suffered. But I, I actually sat out a semester in a summer and worked three jobs, building up enough money so I could go back to school. And when I went back, you know, I had spent enough time in the National Guard and, and was starting to look at the, the military as something that I was really interested in, but realized I would never get there if I didn't get my GPA up and if I didn't graduate. So I want to say that within within two semesters of going back to Kansas State, I was you know pulling a load of eighteen to twenty one hours a semester at a at a three point four GPA, which is a miraculous turnaround from somebody who had a sub one point something a year earlier. Well, you were finally engaged intellectually, and you were motivated. Well, I had a purpose. I don't say that I was overly intellectually. I, I tell my relationship with a degree program back then was I got hours. Tell me whatever I got to do to meet the standard in order to graduate with a degree so that I could take a commission and become an active duty army officer. I had a goal and I had a purpose and the degree was a means of getting there. In retrospect, I wish it hadn't been that way. I wish I'd had more clarity going and that I had been more engaged in and the things that the university offers students to help them find their way. I wish that I had more experience in, in the real world, understanding different lines of works and, and other things. But you know, quite frankly, it's all worked out well for me. So when I say I wish, it's really me talking to my youngest son, who's a junior at the University of Arizona, who's trying to figure out what he wants to be and what he wants to do. And the coaching he gets is largely based on my experience as, a, as an undergrad, not having taken advantage of the environment that was around me. So 
I have two final questions for you, Pete. And these are questions I try to ask all time for coffee guests. This one is about a time in your professional life when you really struggled. Maybe you screwed up a big assignment or had especially challenging supervisors, whatever the case may be. How did you persevere? And maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. You know, I, I will tell you that, that I have had my share of some of the best bosses in the world. I have also had my share of the absolute worst. I will tell you that I learned a lot from both. Not that I would disparage anybody, but there was a period when I was a major assigned as an operations officer in, a, in an organization, and I swear I, I had the world's worst boss. It was almost embarrassing. The challenge of living and working in an environment with an abusive leader around you, leaders beyond him who were kind of oblivious to it, was was a tough place to be. I will tell you the thing that got me through it is realizing that I was the buffer between him and a whole lot of other younger people. And, and that most of them stayed in the Army largely because, you know, for good or worse, I was able to blunt some of the impact on them. That's happened a couple of times in my career where I've been placed in the direct line of fire of a boss who probably should have retired and found something else to do years ago, but for whatever reason didn't. I spent several years in combat, and I will tell you that dealing in the moment with death of the folks who rely on you for guidance and direction leaves a long, indelible mark on you in terms of what you might have done or what it could have been or circumstances or other things. So my first tour in Iraq was particularly brutal. I, I lost 19 soldiers in a short period of time. You know, it's it, it traumatic the first time. The 19th time, it, it is equally traumatic, and, and it doesn't get easier even 20 years later. The things that help you get that one is just faith in yourself. Having a great marriage. I've been married for 30 years. My wife has probably faced more challenges than I have because she's had to deal with me. But I, I think having a close circle of friends who knows you and will body check you when you're not doing things right, an intimate relationship with somebody who you completely trust, who you can tell the truth to, and then having the faith and confidence in your own good judgment are all things that get you through those hard times. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Kansas State and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? First and foremost, go to class. <laughs> I, I think that I don't regret anything. You know, my life has turned out great, and, and I think that you know the fact that I was a college dropout and homeless for a little bit left some marks in my character that, that have served my degree of uh, confidence years later. If I were to do it again, I'd say, you know, it'd be really nice if I graduated from college in time and didn't take six years, because that, that extra couple of years cost me a lot. I think it really is to get engaged in a community around me, to create a large, diverse network of people who think differently than me, whose experiences you can rely on to, to learn different things would be critical. I think the other one would be to, to get indelibly, indelibly engaged in education, not, not necessarily what was happening in the classroom, but use the assets that the university has to actually truly learn something, any way you can do it. I, I think those are the things I would probably counsel myself to redo. All great advice. 
Pete is the co-host of the Innovators podcast broadcast by KZSU at Stanford University FM with all kinds of fascinating people in the innovation and entrepreneurial world. If you want to learn more about hacking for defense, hacking the number for defense, just check it out online. Pete, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are an incredible person, and I know that this may feel like your second or third chapter. I can't wait to see what's going to happen in the fourth and fifth and sixth chapters. Andrea, thanks so much. And and as you said, you know, this is second, third, or fourth quarter. I don't know what it is, but I realize that I'll never not have one. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you today. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.